Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Today, we've got Mike Nuss with Rare Bird Properties. Mike and his partner have created a vertically integrated real estate company. And today we go over the progression on how he started out in real estate and how he's formed his companies. We also talk on how to use leverage, both from an employee standpoint and from money. It's an exciting show today, so let's get started. Well, thanks, Mike, for coming on. Really appreciate you being on our podcast. And you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that you started out as an appraiser and now in charge of a, a brokerage and, and do a lot of real estate investing, but I think probably you'd be better suited telling us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm a slow learner. I'm a slow starter. So I got into real estate appraisal right out of high school. So, you know, I interviewed someone earlier this year and they made a great comment. We're talking about kind of your future self and his comment was, you know, historically he's always been introduced to his future self by someone else. And I was thinking back my lifespan and a lot of that same for me. And I think that's probably the same for a lot of people, but when I was in high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was really a jock. I didn't enjoy school at all. I, sports were my only reason to get through school. And I was playing catch with my uncle in the backyard. And he said, you know, you should come work for me. At the time, he had a new appraisal firm. It was growing. So this was in 97. We had a refinance boom and a sales boom at that time. And I think he was actually joking. But I didn't take it as a joke. <laughs> he didn't think you were going to take you up on it, huh? Exactly, exactly. So my senior year, spring break, I went and job shadowed him. Really enjoyed, I don't know if I really enjoyed the industry or the thought of being in real estate itself, but I enjoyed being in Portland. So as a kid growing up in Salem, Portland was that big city that I always enjoyed going to. So I just, I fell in love with Portland. I didn't have any other opportunities. I worked at a pizza shop. They wanted to make me a supervisor. That wasn't exciting. So started working weekends to finish out my senior year. And then the Monday after I graduated, I started working for him full time. So that was 1997. You know, I got my assistance license. And then that should really take about two years to get your full license. On my third year anniversary, so this was June of 2000, the market had slowed down and he fired. So I took a year sabbatical, kind of realized that I didn't like, I went back to school. I didn't like that life. And so actually on 9-11, in 2001, so the 9-11, I was visiting a friend who was in the same building as my uncle, reconvened with my uncle, got back and started on that appraisal track, and I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. So realized I didn't, I did have an opportunity that I missed, went back and started working for him, then I took it seriously and actually started to really do my law, go for my license, read Rich Dad Poor Dad, realized that I should really be buying real estate. So I got licensed in 2002. Bought my first house in 2003, house hacked that. So I think I was renting a one bedroom apartment that cost like 1200 prior to that. I bought this house, my mortgage payment was 1200 bucks and then I rented the basement. So that was a huge win financially. Perfect. Yeah, right, so the, the house hack, that was a win for me. But I started my own appraisal firm in 2004, got the focus on the business rather than buying real estate. I bought a handful of properties prior to the Great Recession. And then I learned a lot about cash flow during the Great Recession. So as an appraiser, all your friends are realtors and mortgage brokers. And everyone talks about, oh, you don't need to be net 
positive cash flow. If you're negative $100 a month, that's not a big deal. You do your taxes, you gain your net worth on the tax rule, your depreciation, interest write off, all that stuff. Well, when you have five properties go vacant at once and your income gets cut by 80% thanks to Don Frank, you're in a financial whirlwind at that point. And so I learned a lot of lessons of what real, true, positive cash flow is. And then I took that opportunity of Don Frank and really that change in the appraisal industry to say, I can either fight these changes, go with the appraisal industry and dig down and double up on the appraisal world, or I can use this opportunity to trans to educate myself on how to actually be a real full-time real estate investor and then go that route. So that's the route I went. I wouldn't recommend this for other people, but I cashed out my 401k. I wrote a $26,000 check to rich dad, poor dad, which was like, <laughs> it was Tiger at learning at the time. And then that company went away. So my education package changed like three different companies. Robert Kiyosaki wasn't a part of any, any of it. The training was horrible. It was, it was a waste of $26,000 in the value that it brought me, but it made that financial commitment that I'm going down this world of real estate investment. So that was late 2009. And so at that point, you know, I've got no credit because I went through that financial issue. I have no more money because I cashed out my 401k. And so I was doing the wholesaling thing, wholesaled first two properties in that spring of 2010. Met my current business partner, Tyler, through another real estate partnership, got into flipping, land development. In 2011, Tyler and I pulled away from that partnership because they were crooks. They stole all the money and the profit. <laughs> and then got through that wrinkle in late 2011, 2012. And we bought our first rental property together in 2012 and then escalated. So between 2012 and 20, uh, 2018 is where we did our most damage. You know, we went from zero rental units to over 70 rental units. You know, I went from a negative net worth to, you know, over a million dollars net worth. Built a pretty sizable rental portfolio. Started a property management company. Started a brokerage. And then we have the investor lab, the education slash networking company. So really that 1997 to 2010 was learning what I didn't want to do and how to make a bunch, make a bunch of mistakes. Right. 2010 to 2012 was that first two years of kind of getting my legs under my feet, my, leg, my feet under my legs and moving forward. And then 2012 to 2020s when we had some really good explosive growth. You That's can't awesome. just gloss over Rarebird, like starting Rarebird and mm. then turning it into Investor Lab. Yeah. I, I feel like that was a pretty like monumental endeavor and it really impacted the Portland market. Yeah, I appreciate that. So when I started getting traction on the investing side, that was after I joined Northwest RIA at that point. So there was no networking group in town. It was just the Northwest RIA. When I joined Northwest RIA, that's when I started making connections and seeing and meeting people who are actually doing what I want to do in my market. And so for an investor, that is the most significant step or action you can make is join a group where you can now network with people doing what you want to do. And quickly in 2010, I, I, because of my appraisal background, because of the market conditions, you know, essentially the changing, there was a changing of the guard from a lot of people just got out of the industry. A lot of new people were getting into the industry. So I found that I was one of the smartest people at those meetings, meaning I just, I understood investing concepts. I knew how markets work. I knew how to value properties. And so I was able to grow my network pretty, pretty good, pretty quickly through the Northwest RIA. 
And then in 2012, we started, August 2012, we started hosting one of the monthly meeting breakouts for the Northwestern. At that time, we didn't have any of our service companies. We were just a development company. And we hosted these meetings as a way to just provide a little spin on what's going on. You know, it was a little different meeting format that grew quickly. We started in the basement of a bar. So people were doing ski or, you know, the rolly ball machines in the background, super <laughs> dark, terrible atmosphere. And quickly grew that to a big meeting where now we're running out the biggest space that the Riga had. And then fast forward to April of 2014, in late 2013, we knew that we were ultimately going to want to open up service companies. And so we had to do a name change, create a brand, and then go down this endeavor instead of being a, an internal company and not facing the public, that now we have a brand that can be a public-facing brand. So that's when we came up with the name Rare Bird. We're going to have Rare Bird Property Management, Rare Bird Real Estate, Rare Bird Acquisitions. And at the same time, we felt, well, why don't we take that meeting we were doing for the Northwest RIA and bring it into our own brand as well? And so that's when we came up with the Railroad Investor Network. And then in May of 2014, we essentially launched all of that. And then we kind of just, you know, the Railroad Investor Network built those meetings back up to the point where we you know, were having about 100 people or so show up in the, every month, you know, in-person meetings. It's a networking beforehand, some type of presentation for an educational component, and then networking after it. And so that was the meeting format that we did, and, and it worked really well. We've seen a lot of investors really grow significantly over the past few years as, as people got traction in their investment careers. Yeah, and it, as investors, just surrounding yourself with people with the same mindset is, is super beneficial. I'm sure there's a ton of, I mean, the reason you keep growing is more and more people just see more and more value in that, right? Yeah, you know, you can learn anything from reading a book or listening to a podcast, right? You can learn the concept in general, but taking that concept and applying it so that it actually works in your market, that's where you need to rely on other people that are doing it, right? It's one thing to hear someone on a podcast do something successfully, but when you see someone in your market come to you and say, oh yeah, that's a great tool, here's how most people teach it, here's why it does or does not work in our marketplace, and here's how I use that tool to make it work in our marketplace. So the application of something is completely different than the concept of it. And yeah. that's where networking comes into play. Just getting yourself in front of those experts that are actually doing it like in your own market. That is very good advice. I find it extremely interesting that you went from appraisal to like hardcore entrepreneurship and what do you think it was that allowed you to flip the switch there and you know go from what is considered to be an extremely safe job to kind of going all in and making that big change yeah i always wanted to be an entrepreneur so my story goes that in fourth grade you know it was a week-long learning we learned what a, a teacher was what a police officer was what a fireman was and we learned about what an entrepreneur was and then on Friday, we had a random report of what do we want to be when we grow up. And I liked entrepreneur because they didn't have a boss. So in fourth grade, I chose to be an entrepreneur. That's incredible. <laughs> right? I, so I, I hear the person say at fourth grade, that's why I just made a decision. So I spoke it into existence, fourth grade, man, that was what, 25 years ago? But you know, in reality, so I started, you know, I had a paper out when I was young. I started a long way company when I was young. The pizza shop and working for my uncle were the only actual jobs I had. 
When I started my appraisal firm, I hired an assistant quickly. I hired two employees relatively quickly. So when I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and you look at the cash flow quadrant, you know, I was an E working for my uncle. Then I went to the self-employed quadrant. And I always wanted to get to that investment quadrant through real estate investment. But I always wanted to be the business owner as well. So it was all in my mindset. And I, you know, read and, and kind of went down that road. You know, the overnight success for us was probably about... 10 years in the running, I learned a lot of things about hiring and firing. Well, not a lot of things. Looking back, I learned some lessons. I could have learned some lessons back then that I learned later on in my career. But you know, I always wanted to be a business owner. When we started those service companies is when we really needed employees. So Tyler and I hired our first employee in 2014. And then again in 2016, 2017. And there was a big growth curve there. And so we actually went to business coaches at that point saying, okay. Oh, interesting. No, yeah. Like, so that's not a skill set for us. Being a manager, I'm not a good employer. Wasn't a good manager. Wasn't a great leadership from an employee standpoint. And so we went out and hired people to kind of teach us where do we go from here. At that point, we had a real estate coach. So we got rid of the real estate coach and then went to a business coach so we could become better entrepreneurs. Cool. So digging in a little bit deeper, so you chose at fourth grade where did that fourth grader get his inspiration? Did your parents, I mean, were, were they entrepreneurs? What, what was kind of that initial inspiration? And then like, did you learn any habits growing up that have helped you through your career? Yeah, that's a great question. So my dad was a teacher, so he was not the entrepreneur. And my mom was the employee. And so they're amazing parents. My mom actually got me a credit card when I was 17. She said, you need to have a credit card, just put your gas on, right? So you need to develop credit. So that's not an entrepreneurial skill set. And something that I realized over the past couple of years, looking back, it was, it was my grandma. So when I was 10, I was going to her daycare. She ran a daycare. My parents were working. My dad always had two jobs. My mom worked a lot as well. But my grandma was that entrepreneur, right? So she owned her own daycare. She ran a business. She had systems in place. So it's something I never realized that I was learning from her. But looking back, she was that entrepreneurial teacher for many, many, many years in my life early on. And then when I worked for my uncle, that was that next entrepreneur-ish type personality that I got around. And then when I got into real estate investing and started networking with a bunch of entrepreneurs, that's when I really... That's where I started to hit my stride and that's how I realized, hey, I've got this in my blood and, and if I just start taking these actions, we can really be the promise. But it was definitely grandma going back. She was she was the leader in that in that arena. She sounds yes. like a great lady. She was awesome. She I remember one day she really ringed my ass. That was a big learning day for me. We won't get into the details, but she was, <laughs> she was, a, big, she was a good leader for me in my life. Awesome. AJ? Yeah. So let's talk about you starting the, the brokerage, like, and kind of starting those service companies. Like, how did you guys come to that conclusion that that was the thing that needed to happen? Yeah, we've always wanted to have other entrepreneurs around us, right? So collaboration is a big key component in our lives. If we're not collaborating with people, we don't feel like we're full. And so there's multiple reasons to start the companies. If you look at the property management, that was just a natural incremental step. So you know, we had built a portfolio. I think we were up to 12 units when we were trying to sell a building and realized our property manager wasn't the property manager we wanted. So we fired the property manager, started our own property management company. And the vision behind that is we're just going to start this management company, build our own portfolio, and we'll be our largest client. 
And that was that way for the past, the first couple of years until we then were able to then hire more people, have more, so essentially, you know, right hand's pain, left hand early on until we got to the point where we could build it out. And now we have clients coming in and the clients are paying for that right hand and then our right, are paying for the left hand and then our right hand is getting discounted services. So that was the point of the property management company. Plus, you get a cross-referral program going with all these companies as well. So on the property management side, we're familiar with the property. It gives us an opportunity to purchase a property. When we have a brokerage going on, if we can't purchase it, we can refer it to the brokerage to list it. Tenants, first-time home buyers, you can work with the brokerage. So there's a good cross-referral platform there. But the way the brokerage really came out was we were doing individual one-on-one coaching. And what we realized is the people that got value from the coaching were the people that had taken steps above and beyond your typical person said, hey, you know, I, I want to get into real estate investing. I can afford $1,000 a month. For the most part, the people that just wanted to be in investing weren't actually taking necessary steps or getting licensed or doing something extra above and beyond just saying, I want to. They were the ones that would fizzle out. The people that had a broke uh, a license that worked as entrepreneurs, they were great coaching clients. And so what we did is when we moved into our office space, we wanted to have our own sign outside of our office. So that's when we started our brokerage. And then we essentially said, no more one-on-one coaching. We're going to do group coaching, and that's going to masquerade as a brokerage. And so our brokerage is not your normal brokerage. It's all the, all the agents are investors. They don't, for the most part, don't represent buyers and sellers. We don't do commission splits with them. They just have a large monthly fee that they pay us. And then the value we provide is making sure that they're looking at their opportunities the right way, maximizing their effort, help them structure deals, you know, help build their network on, on the various key pieces you need in a network. So our brokerage is mostly a coaching platform, which then we can do some referrals. You know, there's ancillary business opportunities there. But we didn't buy it to be a retail brokerage. We built it to be retail brokerage. We built it to be an extension of our network to provide values in these people's lives. And then in return, we're collaborating, right? That's a key component to us feeling like we're doing what we want to do. And obviously they're paying us for that group coaching as well. So there's there's a financial component to it, but there's also more of an impact. So if you look at our, our goal, we're an impact-driven company. So What's our impact from our acquisitions company? What's the impact from our development company? What's the impact from our property management company? What's the impact from our brokerage? And then what's the impact from Investor Lab and the educational networking side? So it really fills that bigger piece of an impact level more than anything else. Mike, it's pretty incredible what you've built. And just, you know, all of the companies working together and the referrals and everything. And it like really embodies you know what building a team is for a real estate investor and I guess my my question is you know we this podcast is going to get listened to by a lot of newer investors and you know at some point they're going to be thinking about okay you know how do I grow and building a team is kind of at the top of that list and it's how do you go from you know, owning a rental or two to, you know, having five or six companies that are all working together that are creating this massive synergy to like 
create millions and millions of dollars of revenue. Yeah, it's incremental steps and incremental changes. So if you look back in the past 10 years that Tyler and I worked together, we never, you know, we didn't say, hey, we're going to open all these things horizontally. So if you think of each company, so you've got horizontally, you've got acquisitions, development, property management, brokerage. We grew vertically before we grew horizontally. And so, you know, we learned flipping really, really well. So we grew that vertically and turned that into a system, turned that into a process, had our network built around that. Then we started adding rentals. So then we grew horizontally to add rentals and then grew that vertically. Then we could grow horizontally again, add property management service. Then horizontally again to add the coaching. Then change the coaching to brokerage. And so incremental steps along the way. And then when you look back 10 years, you've developed something large. So you don't want to take on too much. I think even if you look at, we grew horizontally too fast and that slowed some of our vertical growth as well. But if you just learn some, learn a skill set, do it well, be able to, to reproduce that on a regular basis, then you can add another skill set. And then you can add another skill set. And so that's all we did is just we learned one tool and then we added another tool and added another tool. And at the end of the day, being a successful real estate entrepreneur is just having a bunch of tools in one tool belt and then understanding how to use the right tool for the right different scenarios. And, that, and that's essentially how we did it. Obviously, you have to have success. Obviously, you have to have a good reputation. You have to have the people skills. You have to have leadership skills. There's a whole lot around that. But I think the, the simplest way to, to break that down is say you learn one skill and then add the next. And so you incrementally grow until you can look back 10 years from now and go as a 10-year overnight success. When you guys started growing like vertically, did you kind of have the mindset of like, how do I replace myself? Or did you just like, we're going to grow this and then figure out what the next step is later? Yeah. Initially, it was figured out later, right? So initially, we were just the acquisitions company, the development company, and we just grew that vertically. And then, you know, we got a our first employee, we actually split part-time with our CPA because we're sharing office space with them. And it was more like a, we'll figure it out later type mindset. Yeah. In 2016, when we realized we're not good managers, we're not going to be able to scale at our current skill set. And then we reached out to other entrepreneurs we knew and hired a business coach. That's when we started thinking intentionally about how we're going to grow that. And then really two books came out of that that really changed our future traction by Gino Track, Gino Wickman. So Traction was the entrepreneurial system we wanted to run. And then the follow-up book to that Rocket Fuel, which talks about a, a visionary versus an integrator. So that's when we had that aha moment of, okay, Tyler and I are both visionaries. We are both acting in an integrator role, and that's not good for anybody. And so then that's in late 2016 is when we went down the hiring path to hire that first integrator. That's when we hired Sonia in, I think, February of 2017. And then, so she was at the top of our organizational chart, and then we started filling it in behind that. And so what we do now is we've got our organizational chart or our accountability charts, what they call them, traction, and we have our current version, and then we have our future version, right? And so, yeah. so we can see what we're growing into but then you can see our current version, you know, this person's wearing multiple hats here, this person's wearing multiple hats here. But ideally, what we want to grow to is this organizational chart where everyone has their own lane, they're sticking in their lane, and they're not working across multiple divisions. But it definitely was getting entrepreneurial coaching slash leadership coaching to get that vision and then how to put that on paper and then work towards it. Nice. 
Sounds like a good experience. I'm, I'm assuming that your future like positions haven't just stayed the same. Like you probably review those like every year and like kind of switch it up. And sometimes it's, it happens differently than what you expect, but if you have a plan, it's a lot easier to work towards or like, uh, share, like sharing the vision with everyone else. Right. Yeah. 100%. There's two key components to that. And it really comes out of traction. One, you have to, so we still have our, so we hired an actual traction coach and we meet with them quarterly. Really on, it was quarterly and then it's yearly. So we meet with them every year and that's where we start. We start with our, our accountability chart. So we see where we're at, where do we need to go? And then the other, so you have coaching, you have a map of where you want to go. The other part is sharing that vision with your employees. So, you know, depending on what time of the year you talk to our employees, they may say, yes, they know exactly where our vision is going. Or they may say, no, depending on when we have that retreat. So we had our first company retreat last year. With COVID, it's been tough to schedule our next company retreat. But the idea is you're sharing that organizational chart with your employees on a regular quarterly basis so they can see where you're going. And at the same time, we're creating quarterly rocks, or quarterly goals for each, for each division of what we run. So that way, employees know what it is we're trying to work for for these 90 days. We know what we are now, what we're trying to accomplish, and what that's going to look like when we do accomplish that. That's cool. We implement the EOS system, although I once, lately we have not been very good on our quarterly meetings, but it definitely works well, you know, and sharing the vision with everyone and everyone working towards the same stuff, so... We're definitely looking forward to being on more track with that, but <laughs> yeah, and it's never perfect. I, I don't know that I know a lot of people that use EOS, and I don't know anyone who uses it to a T. It's just you know, it's it's kind of like whatever fits you best, right? Or like yeah. what you know. Right. Even if you look at like a company like Google or Microsoft or Apple, they don't have their act together one hundred percent of the time. You know, they they're always growing, they're always changing, you're always going through growing pains. But as long as you have a process or at least something you can go back to, to regain your clarity and then move forward. And then you do that as many times as you can a year, but that's always going to change for everyone. Cool. Well, kind of like in growing your companies, I think what we wanted to talk a little bit about is kind of leverage. Like, you know, you use people as leverage, you use real estate as leverage, money as leverage, kind of like when I start talking about leverage, like what, what's kind of comes to your mind? Yeah. You know, I think back to preschool days when we learned what a plane was and a fulcrum and all those things. <laughs> you know, I don't want to live a life without leverage. I think if you live it, like let's compare, you know, me 2020 being a CEO of these companies versus me in 2004 running my first appraisal company. In 2004, that's a really lonely lonely world with a capped upside. And that's not a life I want to live. You know, I want to have other people around me. I want to impact more lives. And I don't want to have my upside capped. Versus now, the leverage side, so that's a deleverage to me in, in the form of a in self-employed to now a leveraged person who's a business owner. Impact way more lives. You know, we take on much more risk. If you think about it, you have to keep 12. We have 12 employees, I think, now. You have to keep all those families fed, make sure revenue is coming out. So we're taking on risk by committing to those salaries. So I think, you know, when, I, when you hear leverage, you hear risk, but I also hear growth. And I think most entrepreneurs, they get excited when they look at potential risk. And when you analyze it and say, well, how can I mitigate risk 
so I can take on this leverage in my life to get to this point that I ultimately want to become. So I think leverage is a key component of A, you can look at it from a debt standpoint, B, you can look at it from a people standpoint. There's a lot of different ways to look at leverage, but the way I think of it is I'm not going to get to where I want to go unless I use leverage to the way that I'm capable of using it in the way it needs to be to get to that what do you think the most effective ways are to use leverage? That's a great question. And it's different, you know, if you look at our various companies, it's different. On the acquisition side, debt, right? So if you, one thing that really separates us from other real estate acquisition companies out there is our understanding of how debt works and how to create lending relationships and really kind of minimize our cash in each project that we do maximize our cash that's on hand for operating expenses and be structuring acquisitions around those two things from from the acquisition side you know on the rental portfolio side how do you structure debt in a way that a the, the property's still providing net positive cash flow you're still getting cash injections so that you where you can buy more real estate to build your portfolio to build your property management company Right, so how do you keep that forward momentum fulfilling? And, and then on the servicing side of the companies, you know, leverage is really a hiring and firing process. So what was really good for us over the past few years was figuring out how to hire slowly and fire quickly. Does that kind of make sense in those different companies on, on how we kind of use leverage differently? On the hiring side, one bad hire, even if you only hire them for a month, that takes up six months of resources. And so you got to hire slow to make sure you're hiring the right people. And then when you do hire the wrong person, you need to recognize that in a hurry and make the necessary changes early on to limit your exposure to all that the resource drain that you're taking on at that point. So that's kind of how I think of leverage in our, in our various companies. Yeah. Those are really good examples of how leverage is used and, and all, all of them. That's awesome. So the question what about partnerships? Do you see partnerships as a form of leverage? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so partnerships to me is like marriage. In a lot of cases, unwinding a partnership can be as, as difficult as a divorce. So depending on what your goals are, goals are, you may or may not need a partner. You know, I happen to have pretty big goals. My partner has pretty big goals. And so we need a partnership to make those things happen. What I'd say about partnerships is, you don't need to partner on everything right from the get-go. And again, you can do incremental steps in the partnership scenario. Like you don't need to own an acquisitions company to partner with somebody on one project. Does that make sense? Where you can, you don't have to take on the whole world just to meet this one goal that you're trying to get. Partnerships for me, you have to bring different skill sets to the table. So, you know, if you're one and they're one, one plus one needs to equal more than two. Otherwise, why are you getting into a partnership? So you have to be, the partnership has to perform at least two times greater than what you would perform on an individual level. And so the only way to ensure that happens if you have incremental skill sets, you have to clearly identify those roles. You have to have the ability to keep your partner accountable. And then what happens if you're not keeping them accountable? So partnerships are really, especially in the service company side, you know, that is the key to leverage as long as it's done the right way. And, and it's just like, you know, it's just like debt. There's risk along with that leverage. So if you leverage too much, you take on the wrong partner or the wrong type of debt, then the downsides there, it's that double-edged sword where 
you can cut through an amazing growth, but you can also cut through huge losses. And so, you know, you don't take partnership lightly. It can be amazing, but you've, if you find that right partnership, it can really grow. Just make sure you recognize if you don't find that right partnership and be able to unwind it and hire you. So you've just done a couple types of partnerships there. One being like when it comes to like partners in a service company, you know, property management or brokerage where you're both leading the company. But then as well, you touched on kind of joint ventures and real estate deals. And I feel like for our podcast and our listeners, I think that talking a little bit more about the joint ventures and, you know, I really loved what you were saying about making sure that both partners are, you know, one plus one is going to equal three or more (laughs) is a big deal. But do you want to chat a little bit more about how, you're structuring your joint ventures and how you're making sure that it's going to be a benefit to both parties. Yeah. Glad you asked that question because it really needs more color in there. So the first essential component to structuring a joint venture is valuing the components that are going into it. And I think especially if you're going to have a lot of your investors listen to this podcast, the biggest pitfall for most partnerships is people overvalue what they're bringing to the table from the get go. And, you know, you probably hear this all the time, which is, hey, I know this property, you know, I want to partner with you, I want you to buy, I want you to raise all the money, and I want you to give me 50% of the profit. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that every single week. The reality is that's not successful, right? If you're expecting to get half of the profit and you have zero the network coming to the table, zero the money coming to the table, if all you have is a lead then your expectation is not in line with the value you bring. You know, the next step up from that is, hey, I actually negotiated this purchase. Here's the property, here's the purchase agreement. The negotiation of this purchase agreement allows us to make this amount of profit over, you know, this project. That's bringing a little bit more value to the table, but then in in it, if you don't know the GC, if you don't know how to manage a project, if you don't know how to raise money, if you don't bring any money to the table, you're still not bringing much value to the table. So you need to get, understand that you're getting rewarded the right way with the amount of value you bring to the table. So that's kind of the early on investor look at it. You asked, how do we structure our joint ventures? So on our development company, we don't really do any joint ventures. On our rental portfolio, we do have some joint ventures where we've taken lenders that lent us money on short-term projects where, you know, they're giving us money, we pay it back, they'd sit on it, give it to us, pay it back, where their money wasn't always in the works. They, you know, they came and said, hey, we really want to own real estate with you. You built up this track record. We really trust you. You, you do a great job finding value at opportunities. We want to be able to provide capital, but we want to have ownership with you. And so in that scenario, what we're bringing to the table is here's the opportunity, right? We're spending money every single month on marketing on our resources, on our employees to go out there every single day to bring opportunities in. So we're bringing value to the table immediately through here's an opportunity that's off market, it's value at play, it may or may not have seller financing involved, yada, yada, yada. That comes step number one. What we're also bringing to the table as a developer, we understand how to turn the property, we've got the network involved, we've got the skill set, we have the vendors, all those pieces necessary then to take it from a rough piece of raw property to now a repositioned performing property. So we're bringing all that to the table and then our capital partners will then bring capital in, right? So we create an LLC together. 
we're bringing these skill sets, they're bringing capital, and then the idea typically is to refinance out, get the capital back, and then we own it going forward. So that's how we like to structure our joint ventures, where we're getting value for our skill set. And then depending on the type of project, you know, maybe there's room for a preferred return in there. You know, if it's a skinny deal, maybe there needs to be a preferred return in there. If they can't get all their capital back out, a preferred return for the capital that stays in. So that way they're getting valued appropriately for the capital that's being brought. But that's typically how we like to structure our joint ventures. On the development company, the reason I said we don't really do any joint ventures, they're all short-term projects. They're very risky projects. And so there's no reason to go into a joint venture. We just act as lenders and borrowers, right? So we just, we're borrowers. We have lenders. You know, they, they get an APR in their loan. They're not playing in the upside. They're not playing in the downside. If we make 100 grand, they're getting their, their principal back with the interest rate. If we lose 100 grand, we're getting their principal back with their interest rate. You know, we're getting all the bonus. We're getting all the negative in those scenarios as well. So we don't like to joint venture in the, in the development company because it just isn't necessary for short-term projects. Cool. That's awesome. Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, I think at this point, let's get to our last four questions if, you, if you're ready. I think so. <laughs> so the first one we always ask is, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah, two things. One, establish a routine. You absolutely have to have a routine of success in this life that gets you out of the day-to-day rat race and gets you focused on a daily basis towards improving your future self, improving your future life. So you have to have a morning routine. You have to get up early. You have to read, write, journal, pray, meditate, whatever it is, exercise. Stay in that routine to keep you as focused and as effective as you ultimately can be. The other piece of advice is I really start, I talked to my previous self about ego. You know, Sigmund Freud created the term ego strength. And there's the times when you're a 25 year old where my ego was really too strong. And there's times where it wasn't strong enough. And, and so I would kind of have that conversation. In real estate, I think our egos get in play a lot. And we deal this typically on the, on the selling side. We're trying to sell real estate and negotiating repairs and egos come in, in play. Real estate is all about the long term. And I think The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek is a great book for real estate, even though it doesn't play to real estate. Because in order to be successful in real estate, you just be in it for a long period of time. You're going to have some wins, you're going to have some losses. But if you can stay in the real estate game for 10 years, you're going to look back and go, wow, this was an amazing invention. So in order to stay in business for 10 years, you don't have to win every single battle. You just have to stay in the game. And I think that if you understand how your ego works, that's the ability to say, you know what, there's no need to fight it right here. Let's just cut a deal and move forward and stay in the game. And so I think I'd have a discussion around that. And it'd be even a more in-deep discussion than that around ego and how that affects our day-to-day decisions. Yeah, that sounds very deep for your 25-year-old self. It is. My 25-year-old <laughs> self was not ready for that discussion. <laughs> but I wish they had been because it would have been a great one to have. Right. All right. So our next question is, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? But we've already kind of nailed that. So I think we'll just skip to the next one, which is how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah, I wouldn't be where I'm at today without formal training. And then I guess the informal training is just living day to day and running businesses and just kind of learning with your roles. But I've spent... 
gosh, on coaching and seminars, you know, well over a hundred thousand, maybe two hundred thousand dollars. So I don't have a formal college degree, but I've spent more than a typical college tuition just in the real estate arena in and of itself. So you can't get where you want to get without having training. And on the flip side, I love being an educator because if you're an educator, you have to stay ahead of the curve in order from a learning standpoint, right? You can't educate unless you're on top of your game. So you have to be a good learner to be a good educator. So informal and formal training, I think, are an essential component of success. That's a good tip of like being an educator requires you to be on top of everything else because... I mean, industry is just always changing. And if you're, if you're sitting still, then you're more likely going backwards, not forwards. <laughs> 100%. Cool. What was your Moby Dick of real estate? Like the one that got away? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I don't really have a Moby Dick of real estate. You know, I've got a good story about one that was going to get away. And I was up all night and kind of had an epiphany and a dream of how we were able to get that deal done and we were. But I'd say if I had a Moby Dick, it was 2015, Tyler and I were flying to Africa to be entrepreneurial teachers in Rwanda for a week. And right before leaving, I had a seller opportunity to come across our plate where they own five properties. And it was the first, we bought multiple properties from people, but not multiple properties at once and five at a time. So this was a big, you know, incremental step in our career. And I met with the seller. You know, I was the first person, they've been talking to a lot of people, I was the first person that said, well, what do you want for all five properties? They're like, oh, well, no one ever asked us that. I said, well, duh, we'll just buy all five, what do you want for? And they came up with a price, very fair price, and so I think I met with them on a Thursday or Friday, I went to their house on a Saturday with a purchase agreement, and then we were leaving for Rwanda on Tuesday. So it took them the purchase agreement on Saturday, and there are five individual purchase agreements, so there's a different price for each property. And each property could not close unless all the properties closed. So it's kind of a blanket transaction, but it allowed us to give value to the different properties and then structure different agreements for each property. Then on Monday, we go around, we tour all the five properties. We're like, yeah, this is great. We're ready to move forward. And then when I'm in the airport on Tuesday, I get a call, hey, we decided to go with someone else. And what had happened was the other person they were talking to was a wholesaler, was actually a realtor slash wholesaler. And they just did the same thing we did. They wrote up five purchase agreements, but on the one, they had four really good properties and one fringe property. They just increased the price by 100 grand on that fringe property. And then what they also didn't do is they didn't tie the purchase agreements together that all of them had to close or none of them had to close. And so, you know, I was in Rwanda having the phone call and just, and, and I told the seller, you're not going to sell all five. You're going to buy four, and you're going to get stuck with this one property. Come, you know, time flies, come, and that's exactly what happened. This, this person wholesaled off all four of them. They didn't actually buy any of the properties. They wholesaled four and then just stuck them with the fifth property. So that was kind of frustrating because if I wasn't in Rwanda, I think I probably could have had a different, a little bit more control over that situation. So the five got away, but what was awesome was a couple of years later down the road, they called us back. It was time to sell property number five. We ended up purchasing property number five. We actually ended up, it was a change in market conditions. A bunch of apartment buildings were built right next door. And so our ability to then rent it diminished because our competition on the rental side increased dramatically. This was a one-bedroom house and, you know, you just had 200 one-bedroom units built within three blocks. So we actually bought it at a lower price and with seller financing. So it didn't fully get away, but I feel like 
that was the one where it could have been, you know, I could have bought five properties all from the same owner. If I had more time, we could have made it a much more of a win-win type scenario for them. But, you know, it is what it is. And you're going to deal with that stuff in the marketplace on a regular basis. Yeah, it's, it can be competitive out there, but that's kind of interesting that you called exactly what they were going to do. Hopefully, I mean, I'm sure that probably built rapport with the person selling and that's probably why they came back to you. So that's... Exactly. And it was great because when we, when I went to meet them, so they called me back, set an appointment to go meet them again at their house. I showed up and the wife's like, you don't have any paperwork. I said, no, we need to get two things very clear before I move forward and I put time in this. One, the price isn't going to be the same that we offered a couple of years ago. And it is going to be a seller finance transaction. If you can't agree to a lower price and seller financing, I'm not going to take up the time to do, to do paperwork. So the fact that everything kind of went the way I said it was going to go gave me more credibility. And that yeah. credibility gave me more leverage in the negotiation. Yep. That's Back to leverage. Yeah. <laughs> right? Back to leverage. So yeah, and your knowledge and your expertise and your credibility is, is another, there's lots of different types yeah. of leverage out there. Yeah. Well, awesome, Mike. We really appreciate having you on. If any of our listeners want to get a hold of you, do you want to give out some contact information or anything like that? Or yeah, yeah. So you know, Rare Bird Mike is my or at Rare Bird Mike is my Instagram handle. You can find me on Facebook at Mike Ness. I don't get on social media very much. Cell number for me five zero three seven eight nine nine eight two one. Send me a text. And then Investor Lab. You can always find out what we're doing on Investor Lab as well. I am going to give on January twenty sixth. The market forecast. So I do a market forecast every year. So, you know, if this gets published prior to then and people want to cover that market forecast slash virtual networking event, we can, we can make that. Cool. Well, again, really appreciate having you on. It's got tons of great information, super fun hearing about how you got the brokerage started and a bunch about partnerships. So really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on guys. Great to yeah, see you. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah. Good All luck with the podcast. Oh, I appreciate that, Chris. Thank you, man. Just trying to keep up with you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.